Good morning. I feel like I'm still waking up, guys. I'm so sorry. Um, glad you guys are here this morning. So we uh, we have a lot of ground to cover today, and I think I said this last week. You have to you have to pardon me. We'll jump into it relatively quick uh, because chapter 12 is long. And it's not that I want to rush through these chapters. I, I, I honestly don't. Some of them, though, there is, there is no real good middle place to stop. And I don't really want to do those, like, to-be-continued type sermons. I don't, I don't like that. I like there to be, like, a good, nice kind of ending to, to, to each one of the sermons. And so we're going to do all of chapter 12 today, which is, which is a, a chunk. And um, we'll get through it. And I'm saying all this to say um, we will not cover... We will cover everything. We won't go super deep today. For some reason, my clicker is not working. Um, we, will not, we will not go super deep in chapter 12. There we go. And the reason why I say that is not very often. I have gotten a couple in the past where someone will say, why don't we go deeper into the scripture during the sermons, which I feel like we go relatively deep. But, it, but it, the other thing is, um, and I do this intentionally, I only want to go deep enough to encourage people people to, to do some research on their own. I don't feel like I should be the only one feeding you the word. I think you should feed yourself the word too. So uh, I don't want to do all the work for you. And, and so we will scratch the surface. We'll, we'll get into some deep stuff. The first, the first section that I'm going to read though, that would be worth you researching a little bit more on your own because there's just so many facets to it that we won't have time to touch on this morning. But Last week, we were in chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, talked about the death and resurrection of Lazarus. I think what is so interesting about the story of Lazarus in chapter 11 of John is it really doesn't talk that much about Lazarus. It talks a lot about all these people around that situation and how they responded to that situation in different ways. And so what that brought up for us, kind of the practical application to to last week's sermon is how do we handle situations like this? How do we handle loss? How do we handle confusion? How do we handle kind of the curveballs of life, if you will? Do we trust God through those things, even if we don't understand those things? Do we put it in his hands? That's what we talked about last week. This week, um, we're gonna talk about this because it's gonna end on God's word. Jesus is going to talk about his word, and I'm not trying to ruin it for you. Jesus says, I didn't come to judge you but my word will judge you. That's a very interesting interesting statement. And what we're gonna talk about today is we're going to be judged by the standard of the word of God, but, but that's not really the question we're gonna, we're gonna ask. The question is, are, are we living by that standard? By what standard or by whose standard do we choose to, to think and act and respond and do the things in our life? Okay, so that's what we're gonna talk about. Today, So you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything will be in there. Um, everything will be on the screens. I'm gonna get through it today, guys. And if you have a Bible, that's what this book is called, a Bible. If you have one of these, we're in the fourth uh, book of the New Testament. We're in chapter 12. We're gonna do all of it. You know what it is? So me and Kyle and, and Austin, uh, about every year, we go either to Cincinnati or St. Louis and we watch a baseball game. In the six or seven years that we've been doing this, I've never seen the Cardinals win against the Reds, which is ironic because Reds suck. But anyways, so, um, but we went up there, we went up there Wednesday and uh, we watched a game and then came back and I got home at like two o'clock in the morning. And this is how you know you're getting old. 
Um, what is it, four days later? Still haven't recovered, right? Like still, still just haven't recuperated from coming home at two o'clock in the morning. I remember a time when we used to do that all the time and you were okay and those times are long gone. So, all right, let me pray. <laughs> let me pray and we will jump into the sermon and uh, work through it, okay? Father God, we love you. Lord, I thank you so much. Lord, thank you, honestly, Lord, and, and, and sincerely, Lord, thank you, God, for all these people who come out to this early service and uh, give up a chunk of their Sunday, God, and hear the word and, and worship. Lord, I just pray that you bless our church this morning. We don't just pray for our church, though, Father. We pray for every single church in our city that follows your word. We pray for our other campuses and all the churches in those cities, Lord. We pray for the wonderful nonprofits we partner with. And, and Father, always, our prayer is that ultimately, Lord, you receive all the glory and honor, and we are drawn closer to you. God, keep your hand on us, Lord, as we study your word, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm gonna read a little bit, and uh, we'll go back and we'll talk about it, okay? Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one he had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard or oil, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal a part of, it, of, what, a part of what was put in. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial, for you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Then a large crowd of Jews learned that he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one who had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. So six days, this is, this is gonna be the last week of Jesus's life. So six days before the largest Jewish festival, and we'll talk about just how big of a festival this was. Jesus comes back to the area of Bethany. This is where he resurrected Lazarus. He's gonna hang out with Lazarus, his disciples. He's gonna spend some time with Lazarus's two sisters, Martha and Mary, and they're just gonna, they're just gonna relax. So as Martha was getting everyone food, and the 12, and Jesus, and Lazarus, I love it says Lazarus was reclining, right? When you get resurrected from the grave, you recline, right? So he was reclining. And Mary comes in, in the middle of this, and she opens up an extremely expensive jar of perfume and pours this on Jesus's feet. Now, when I say expensive jar of perfume, this would have been the equivalent of about a year's salary. So I think the average salary in the United States is somewhere in the ballpark of like $55,000. So let's just say this was a $50,000 jar of perfume. That's some expensive perfume. And so she comes in, she opens this up, pours this on Jesus's feet, kind of cleans his feet with it, wipes his feet down with it, and then takes her hair and, and gets it all off of his feet. Now this was both a sacrifice, right? Pretty expensive sacrifice. And she saw it also as an investment. 
the fact that she would come in and give what was probably the most expensive thing she owned, give this over to Jesus, not just give it to him, lay it at his feet. Interesting, the symbolism there. It shows that she was willing to give everything to him, that she was willing to lay it all down at his feet, give it all and give her best to him. The fact that she used her hair to wipe it up was also a big deal. This is very different culturally for us. Women, it, it's not a big deal that you wear your hair, hair down. In Jesus's time, women did not have their hair fully exposed and they would not always wear it down. It was kind of, uh, it was very vulnerable for a woman to be seen with, with a naked head, if you will. But she took off what was on her head, let her hair down, and that showed her humility, that showed her vulnerability to Jesus. This was a big deal. It was also a, a much bigger deal than what Mary even realized. Mary didn't understand that she was foreshadowing not only the cross, she was foreshadowing the fact that that same week, Jesus would wash his disciples' feet. But it symbolized his death, his burial, his resurrection. And what we learn is this, this is interesting. If we will be willing to be as vulnerable and humble and lay it all down at Jesus' feet, not only will Jesus save us and bless us, he will use us in, in a way that I don't think we'll fully understand until the other side of life. That he will do amazing things with us. We're still talking 2,000 years later about what this woman did with this expensive perfume. And then all of a sudden now we have uh, Judas, right? Most people know who Judas is. This is only, if I'm not mistaken, this is only the second time in the entire Gospel of John that Judas has been mentioned. Judas was the treasurer, and so he was the one that handled the money. And John says he was also about to betray Jesus. Now he said that he was upset because we could have fed a lot of poor people with this money. Look at all we could have done for the community with this money. We know that that's not true. He was a thief. He was a liar. He just wanted to steal it. He was in it for himself. But Jesus does not address the motives. Jesus actually addresses this idea of feeding the poor. Now, here's the thing. Feeding the poor is something that the, the church and Christians are supposed to do. Jesus said we're to feed the poor, clothe the naked, visit the prisoner. This is, this is a part of the Christian experience. In fact, right now during the service, we have a team of people feeding the poor and the homeless right across the train tracks. We've been doing that for almost 14 years now. So that's part of what we should do. The point Jesus is trying to make though is this. Community service, and let's call it social justice. I know that kind of has a tainted meaning right now, but social justice, social gospel, those things are of God, but they are secondary to the main point, which is the gospel. That is the main point. What Jesus is trying to say is this. You only have a limited amount of time to get your soul in order. There will always be work to do in the community, but we don't always have time to waste when it comes with our relationship with God. Another way of saying that is this. Though I believe we should, we should help the needy, if we feed every single belly in Murfreesboro, but we do not spread the eternal message of the gospel, we have failed. Amen. We have failed. So it's, a, it's both, but first and foremost, the Bible says, Christ came to save sinners, and that should be the mission of the church first and foremost as well. We also see something interesting here. It says that a crowd of people showed up because they wanted to see Jesus, and they also wanted to see Lazarus. Another group of people also found out that Jesus and Lazarus were hanging out, and they wanted to kill both of them. They wanted to kill, the religious leaders not only wanted to kill Jesus, 
They also wanted to kill Lazarus because Lazarus was bringing people to Jesus. Of course, we learn from this. This may also be the case for us. We must understand that if we are to live like Jesus, act like Jesus, speak like Jesus, think like Jesus, the ramifications of hatred because of those thoughts and words and actions, we can expect those things too. Why can we expect that? Because Jesus said, don't be shocked if they hate you because they have hated me first, right? This is part also of the Christian experience that there will be backlash. So the next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, resurrected, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. <laughs> Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So these next two slides are, are, are very important. When people heard that Jesus was making a, a public appearance in Jerusalem, last chapter they were looking for him, he wasn't anywhere around, now he's back in Jerusalem. It says that large crowds met Jesus as he was coming into town. It says that they laid down palm branches and they said, King of Israel, Hosanna, which means King, save us, save us King. Now this seems awesome, right? If you're reading this for the first time, you're like, oh, finally, Jesus is getting the attention that he deserves. But what's interesting is, within the same week, in just a couple of days, all those same people who are saying, save us, King of Israel, are the same ones who say, crucify him. Now, this is interesting. Why? What happened to make them go from calling him king, save us, king, to saying, kill him? What happened? Now listen, as I show you this slide, and if you're new here, the majority of people that leave this church is not over theology, it's over politics. And boy, that's a real shame. But anyways, I say shame. Sometimes I'm like, have fun. Anyways, <laughs> listen, Passover drew, Passover drew almost three million people to Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. That's a lot of people. And so the festival of Passover celebrated the liberation of the people of God from an oppressive empire, the Egyptians. Now, several hundred years after that, they were now under the oppressive empire of the Romans, a very liberal, oppressive government. And they were longing for a king to come and deliver them from an oppressive, liberal government. The problem is, is that, not, that, that is not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to save us from the corruption of government. Jesus came to save us from the corruption of sin. Amen. 
This is the problem. Now listen, and I'm not trying to be a jerk this morning, but we have a huge problem in Christianity in America right now. There are a lot of Christians who say a lot, God bless America, but they've never prayed, God bless my neighbor. Do you hear me? There's a lot of people who pray for a country, but they don't pray for people. And that's a problem. We have gotten the cart before the horse. We think that passing laws will will somehow change morality. When Jesus came onto the scene, the, the, the people had taken 10 very simple rules from God and added over 1,500 amendments to it, thinking that will make people better. Did it? No. That's why Jesus showed up. Do we need law and order? Of course we do. God is a God of order. I totally understand that. But just passing legislation does not change the hearts of man. Only God changed the hearts of man. And if we will change the hearts of men and women, you will start to see society look differently. Cart before the horse. So they expected Jesus to come as a political advocate. And Jesus is like, you're looking for the wrong guy. That's not what I came to do. So everything Jesus did fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Even mundane things like riding into town on a donkey, that fulfilled Zechariah chapter nine. And as the disciples were watching this, they didn't fully understand how big of a deal this was. Of course, they were probably like, this is awesome. Palm branches and they're shouting, calling him king. This is amazing. But they didn't realize just how big of a deal this was until after the resurrection. So what we see is these disciples were still very spiritually immature. You know what this reminds me of? And and those of you who've been Christians for any length of time, you you know what I'm gonna talk about here. What this reminds me of is, is now that we have been Christians for a while and we've matured, you can like look back on things that happened 10 years ago and now you realize, oh, that was God. You guys know what I'm saying? Things happened way back in the past and, and you didn't see the scope of it at the time, but now you're like, oh, oh God, that was you. You are protecting me from that. You are doing this. You are doing these things. And we understand that because we have matured in our faith. And so though many of the witnesses, a lot of the people who had seen Lazarus be resurrected, they they were telling everyone about it. They were testifying about it. But we're gonna see, these are the same people, the same people who are like, man, he raised the dead. Or the same people who who are gonna want him to be dead. So what we see is this, just because people have experienced the miraculous or witnessed it doesn't necessarily mean that they have a personal relationship with God. And so we also see that the Pharisees, they say, look, the world has gone after him. They're upset, right? They're mad. We see that an unwillingness to to relent power to God causes hatred and it causes violence. Isn't it ironic that that in our country right now, the less and less we believe in God, it seems the more aggressive and violent we become. Because it's impossible to value human life when you don't believe in the creator of human life. It is impossible to value it, and we see that more and more. Okay, this next section is long, bear with me. Now, some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. 
The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it, and they said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Then the crowd replied to him, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Jesus answered, the light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. Jesus said this and then he went away and he hid from them. Okay, so this is kind of a fun little fact. Um, there were some Greeks. Now, more than likely, these were not people from Greece. These weren't Grecians. These were more than likely just non-Jews, non-Jewish people. Some non-God-fearing, non-Jewish people found Philip and Andrew, and they said, hey, how can, we, how can we get a word in with Jesus about what he's doing? Now, what's interesting about this is Philip and Andrew are the only disciples with Greek names. So, they probably sought out Philip and Andrew because they're like, okay, there's two of them that have, have you know, Greek names, like we have Greek names, and maybe that'll get us in with Jesus. We're gonna find out that it doesn't get them in with Jesus in the way that, that they wanted to talk to him. Because what's happening right here is the baton is starting to get passed from Jesus to his disciples. What do I mean by that? It was Jesus's job, if you will, to spread the good news to the Jewish people. It was going to be his disciples' job to then take that to the entire earth, to all the non-Jewish people. And that baton is starting to get passed right here. We're starting to see that. So Jesus says, my hour has come. Can we talk to Jesus? He says, my hour has come. What does that mean? That means that it is now the time when, when his crucifixion is imminent. It's gonna happen the week that we're talking about right here. So the time coming is the time when Jesus is to be crucified for the sins of humanity, and I love this, it's a very simple analogy, but Jesus says it's like a seed that has to die. That if a seed is planted in the ground, unless it dies and, and, and opens up, there can't be this, this beautiful production of fruit or flowers or vegetation. There can't be this growth. So Jesus is saying, I have to lay my life down because if I don't, there's gonna be no growth. There's gonna be production, uh, no production. There's gonna be no fruit of this. So again, the Greeks wanted to talk to Jesus. But Jesus was now starting to put the, 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 the responsibility of taking the gospel on to his followers. And listen, that is still the responsibility of his followers today. 
Jesus is not here walking around, going into coffee shops, being like, hey, have I told you about me? That's, that's, that's not what he does nowadays. The Holy Spirit of God now resides in you and I, and we are the ones that are supposed to go out and, and spread the good news of who Jesus is. In order to do that, though, we have to be willing to lose our lives. That's a metaphor, but it may be more than that. So Jesus is straightforward about his desire for, for full devotion, that Jesus isn't content with like, you know, 90% of us. He, he wants all of us. But if we choose to live for us, if we choose to live for self, Jesus is saying we forfeit eternity. So you may have everything you want in this life. You may live for self and get all of your selfish desires now, but, but you're forfeiting the future. On the flip side of that, Jesus says, if you will hate your life in this world, you will inherit eternity. Now, we have to be careful with that. When Jesus says, if you hate your life, you will inherit eternity, that doesn't mean as Christians were to walk around being like, oh, my life sucks, right? You know, I'm just a good Christian. I hate my life. That's not what that means. That's, that's not what that's referring to. When he says hate your life in this world, he means hate the evil that is in this world. The, 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 what, is, what is culturally accepted right now and what is evil, uh, what, what, is, what is evil in society, we are to despise that and live differently. That's why the Bible says we are to be a peculiar people, a counter-cultural people. Do you know what I think the hardest trick right now of being a Christian is? I mean, it's, it's not super easy to be a Christian right now. I think the, the, the biggest trick of Christianity right now is absolutely despising and hating the evil that is in the world. Um, in chapter 11, it says that Jesus wept, and we talked about that. The reason why Jesus wept, he was, the reason he was so upset is he saw the ramifications of sin on humanity, and he hated that. He hated that. We should hate that too. The trick, though, is this. How do we hate the evil that is hurting people but still love the people who may even be engaging, listen, and propagating that evil? We are called to love them. That's the trick. We are called to hate the sin, right, but love those people who engage in that sin and even propagate that sin. Love our enemies, Jesus said. Easier said than done, but that's what we're supposed to do. So as Jesus is talking about all this, we start to see the emotional turmoil that Jesus is going through. Now, listen, Jesus is fully God. He's made that clear. He is also fully human at this point. And we are seeing the human side of Jesus realizing that he is about to be viciously killed that, that week. And so we're starting to see that. And so as the cross approaches, we see this, this emotional stress that's on Jesus. We also see another example of God stepping in and, and honoring Jesus and honoring anyone who is willing to follow his will during difficult times. So the irony of following Jesus and doing Jesus's will is this. If we will make our lives all about glorifying God, we in turn get to live in God's glory forever. That's the irony. If we will lose our life, we find it. That's what it says in the Gospel of Matthew. If we will lay down our lives, that's how we actually find our lives. I said this, I think, last week or the week before. I'm getting old and can't remember. That, that with our relationship with Jesus, Jesus does not benefit at all. At all. 
That offends people sometimes when I say that. But, but Jesus is complete without you. It is really bad theology, and I've heard people say this before, you know, why did God create people? Well, he was lonely. No, God is perfect community within himself. He is Father, Son, Spirit within himself. God is perfect, he, he does not need us. But that makes the story that much more beautiful. He doesn't need us, but he wants us. And that's, that's a beautiful thing about that. And if we will live our life in honor of him, he honors us, if you will, for, forever. So Jesus told the crowd that judgment is coming, and because judgment is coming, he has to be lifted up. When he says lifted up, he means literally, off the ground on a cross. He's going to be crucified. And because of that cross, because of the crucifixion, all people will be drawn to him. Now, there's a group of, of, I would say, rather extreme Christians who are called Christian universalists. What that means is they believe that, yes, Jesus is the only God, but all people will be saved. All people will be saved. And they use scripture like this to, to justify that thought. Look, it says all people will be drawn to him. The Bible says that it's not God's desire that any go to hell. It does say those things. But the fact that he says all people will be drawn to me does not mean that all people will be saved. That's very clear in the Bible. What Jesus is saying right there is not universalism. Jesus is saying the invitation is open for anybody. We still have to receive that invitation. We still have to receive that call. But it is not God's will that any go to hell. He doesn't want that. We'll talk about that again here in a second. So he opens up the door for any who would come that they could be saved and inherit eternal life. So Jesus resurrected and poured out his spirit on his followers. So here's the thing. At the end of the gospels, Jesus leaves in bodily form, but he is not gone. When Jesus says, hey, use this time to walk in the light because I'm not always going to be with you, he meant I'm not always going to be with you in body, but I will be with you in spirit. Essentially, his point in this part that I just read, though, is listen, while you have me right in front of you, while you can touch me and look into my eyes, believe in me because it's, it's easy to believe in me right now because you can see me. It's going to be harder as time goes on. So take advantage of this opportunity. Now, we do not get to physically see Jesus, but here's the thing about us right now. We live in the most free, prosperous nation that has probably ever existed. We have the Bible readily available to us. We have apps on our phones that will read it to us. We have resources to study. We have freedom to do what we're doing right now. And I think if Jesus were in here right now, I know he's in here, but you know what I'm saying. If he were in here teaching right now, he would say, look, while you have this opportunity, walk in the light. Because it's not always going to be this easy. So whenever I hear people say, man, it's just too hard to be a believer in 2023, so Bartholomew, he was, one of the, he was one of the disciples, was skinned alive and kept his faith intact. Oh, I might lose some friends. Skinned alive for his faith. John, the guy that wrote this book of the Bible, died a natural death, but was boiled alive and thrown on an island, exiled from society. This is a little bit tougher than losing some friends on Facebook. This is a little bit harder. So why we have the opportunity to walk in it, it's not going to get easier as time goes on, so we need to determine now to walk in the light. Last part, and I gotta step it up a little bit. Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. 
This was to fulfill the words of Isaiah the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is why they were unable to believe because Isaiah also said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand in their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw God's glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, many did believe in him among the rulers, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they, not, they would not be banned from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Jesus cried out, the one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as the light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. This part is also very important. So though many people did believe in Jesus, a lot of people did not believe in Jesus. And this is unbelief even in the face of a dead man rising from the grave, Lazarus. Now, this unbelief <clears throat> fulfilled prophecy from the book of Isaiah. And what this looks like, it reminds me, I don't know if it reminds you of this, it reminds me a lot of when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Moses goes, pulls out of the Jewish people out of Egypt, and Pharaoh had many, many opportunities to change his mind, but he didn't, even in the face of miraculous things. So it says that God gave Pharaoh over, right? That he, that he basically darkened his mind, darkened his ability to see the truth. It also says this in Romans 1.28, that God will give people over to a worthless mind, a reprobate mind. Now, if one stands off from a distance, you may say, well, how can a loving God give people over to this worthless mindset to where it's, it's, it's impossible for them to believe. That sounds really cruel. Does God just pick random people out and send them to hell for, for forever? No, 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 no. There is no contradiction in the Bible, and the Bible says it's not God's will that any go to hell. So how does this happen? What happens is, is when we live our life continually saying we want nothing to do with you, I'm gonna do it my way, I'm gonna do it the way I wanna do it, get out of my life, eventually God gives them over to what they want. He hands them over to, to, to what they're choosing to live out. And so John also writes that many didn't believe, but also many did believe. Even among the rulers, which means politicians and religious leaders and people who had influence and affluence in the community, they believed, but, but, but John says they were, they were closet Christians, if you will. They hid because they didn't want to be excommunicated from society. We would call that maybe closet Christians, which I want to go ahead and tell you there's no such thing as a closet Christian. That, that doesn't exist. 
Now listen, here's the thing. Christians are to be reputable, which means we are to have, to the best of our abilities, a good reputation in the society around us. But we are not too long for because we will eventually compromise our faith if we are constantly longing for the affirmation of people over the affirmation of God. If you want my opinion, I'd say this is the Achilles heel of the North American church. We care more. We, we care about God, right? We will say, yes, I believe this. I believe this word to be true. I believe everything Jesus said. I believe that. But when the pressure comes on, we will relent our beliefs in public because we're afraid of what people will think of us. The problem is this. The Bible says that if you deny me on earth, I will deny you in heaven. There are some dire consequences to this quote-unquote closet Christianity. So Jesus cries out. This last part that I just read is, is all in red letters, right? It means Jesus is saying it. So Jesus cries out, and he basically says, I am exclusively the pathway to God. If you've seen me, you've seen God. If you believe in me, you believe in the one who sent me. Not only does he, he exclusively say he's a pathway to God, he said multiple times, he is in fact God, which makes him the light of the world. And that light enables not only for the darkness to be exposed in us, but for the darkness in us to be, to be forgiven so we can escape eternal judgment. Jesus is saying, I am the only way that this is possible. Now again, this is something that's very offensive, and this is one of those points that a lot of Christians roll over on. They'll say, well, I mean, you know, I have this friend that's this other religion, and they're really, really nice. I'm not doubting that they're nice. I'm not doubting but, but, the, the, by the world standards that they're not a decent, good person. But the problem is this. There is only one pathway to God, and that is through Christ, because there's only one God, and it is Christ. So there's only one pathway to that. And we are not loving people correctly if we are not honest about that truth. And so here is, again, maybe one of the most important things that we're gonna talk about today. The word Jesus has spoken, Jesus says this. I love what Jesus says. Jesus says, I don't wanna judge you. I don't wanna do that. I didn't come here to judge you. But he says, my word will be your judge, which means the word of God will be the standard by which all of us are held accountable to. Do you know what this reminds me of? We do this here, and I'm sure most of your jobs do this as well. When we hire someone here, we have a job description. You know, this is what we expect of you. This is what we will do. It's this written word, if you will, and you sign off on it saying that you agree with what is written down. Now, if we let you go, which is very rare around here, I think I've fired four people in 14 years, that when we let someone go here, though, it is not me firing them. It is the word that they signed off on that lets them go, if that makes any sense. It is the same thing with this word. It is not Jesus that wants you to go to hell, but it is by this standard that he has given us that we must live or we are choosing to go down that, that path. So here's the thing. If we keep Jesus's word, we don't have to worry about judgment because we are declared innocent by Christ because we have followed his word. And so some people will argue, well, Jesus was just referring to what he said. There's a thing called red letter Christians, which means they think you only have to follow the red letters in the Bible, the exact things that Jesus said. The problem theologically with that is this. Jesus is God, and it says in 2 Timothy 3 that every single word of the word of God was inspired by God. 
So if Jesus is God, and this is the inspired word of God, it's all Jesus's word. It's all him. And we have to adhere to that. We have to follow that, okay? All right, let's talk about some, some, some kind of high points today that we talked about. The first one is this. Following Jesus is a sacrifice. I don't mean that in a derogatory manner. I don't mean that to scare you off. I don't wanna be honest with you. Jesus says that if you wanna follow me, pick up your cross. It's a sacrifice. It's not just a sacrifice, though. Following Jesus is also an investment. It's not easy. It will cost you your time. It will cost you your talent, your energy. It will get into your finances. It will cost you your identity. But listen, here's the thing. <laughs> it's all for the better. If we allow the Lord to get into, it, it is not always easy to be vulnerable and let the Lord into every corner of our life. But if we will, if we will do it, it makes us better <laughs> in every corner of our life. It helps us and it secures our eternity. The question is simply this though. We talked about this last week. Are, are you and I, are we wise enough people to, to, to step back a little bit and to see not only our life in perspective, but if we can compare our life, and I know we can't wrap our brain around eternity, but if we think about the simple pleasures that we have now, are we wise enough to see how foolish it is to exchange forever for a temporary feeling now? Are we wise enough to say, God, you can have it all? Are we wise enough to lay it all down at his feet like Mary did in exchange for an eternity with him, living in his glory? Or are we wise enough to do that? We're just being honest in here today because this is what America does. Do we as Christians, Christians, do we sometimes prioritize our nation? And listen, I'm not a communist. I don't hate living here. I'm, I'm not, you know... I, I'm not trying to bash on the United States. Again, though, I think there's a lot of Christians that have confused the Constitution and the Bible. I think there's a lot of Christians who have put that above. They know more about their, their man, I'm gonna, I shouldn't say that. They know more about their amendments and their rights than they know about their, their spiritual rights and, and what is in the Bible. And they'll say, well, that's my God-given right. I'm like, that's not in the Bible. So anyways, do, do we prioritize our, our our nation more than we prioritize our relationship with God, our color, our gender, our social status. Listen, if we identify more with any of those than we do with God, guys, that's idolatry. And it's one of the 10 commandments. And this is, again, this is a problem. And we need to, we need to look at that. I think one of our bigger problems though is that we are more concerned about the opinions of our peers than we are about our superior, about the one that is above us. And we've become a society that is addicted to that acceptance. We're addicted to that affirmation. That's why whole denominations have, have, have manipulated scripture because they just wanna make sure that everyone likes them, right? And they have, they have manipulated the word, twisted and turned it. Another thing we talked about today, because Jesus says you only have a certain amount of time with the light. We have a limited amount of time, and as that passes, it is going to become more and more difficult to live for Jesus. Listen, the, the Bible talks about the wheat and the tares, and that they're both going to increase 
as time goes on. What that means is this, the closer and closer Jesus's return gets, the more and more hell is going to unleash every trick they have. And you are seeing that right now in society. And so it's going to become more and more difficult to follow Jesus. So what we have to do is we have to kind of put, we have to draw a line in the sand and kind of put our heels down, put down some roots now and build that relationship with Jesus. I'm not saying, and it sounds like I'm just trying to be all you know, anti-government today. I'm not trying to be. But if you've never been in a church during an election season, it's awful. And in 2024, man, everyone is gonna be showing their butts. So if we cannot be civil, and if we cannot be Christ-honoring right now, it's gonna be harder next year. So we need to make sure that we are praying. We need to make sure that we are reading the word of God. We need to make sure we are doing what the Bible tells us to do. We need to be willing to lose our life in order to find it. Jesus says, if you wanna gain your life, you have to choose to lose your life. What does that mean? That means if I'm willing to give it all to Jesus, it is only when I'm willing to lay down everything, just like Mary, willing to lay down everything at Jesus' feet, it is only then that I understand what it truly means to live. Amen. And it is only then that I understand that I have a security in my salvation with him. But listen, we're not only to be willing to lose our lives for Jesus, we're also to be willing to lay down our lives and lose it literally for others that we are now the couriers of the gospel and that may cost us our social life and it may cost us our literal physical life. But that is now the call, right, of all of us who claim to follow Jesus. Amen. So all of us will be held to the standard of God's word. If we choose to reject his word, we are choosing to live in darkness now and judgment for eternity. Some people say, well, Corey, how could a loving God send people to hell? Jesus does not want to send anyone to hell. We choose hell. Jesus presents to us. We are on a sinking ship, and Jesus is the life raft, and he's saying, if you will just come with me, I will save you from this destruction. And if we say, no thanks, it's not because Jesus wants you to go down. You have chosen to go down. This is eternity. Our eternity is our choosing. He has opened up the opportunity. He says, I will draw all people to me. But we have to accept the invitation. And if we face eternal judgment, that's on us. That's on us. And so we have to be careful. Listen, you and I have to be very careful not to slide into willing ignorance or manipulation of the Bible. What that means is this. If we are gonna be judged by the standard of this word, we need to be very careful not to twist and change and omit or add things to this word. In fact, if you get to the very end of this word, John, who wrote this, writes something very interesting at the end of Revelation. He says, if anyone adds to this book, the plagues of this book will be added to you. If anyone takes away from this book, your name from the Lamb's book of life will be removed. That means altering God's word is not our place. It is not for us to do. This has dire and eternal consequences. So we must make sure if this is the standard, we need to know the standard and we have no right to change the standard. So the question or questions is simply this. 
if we are being honest, honestly, guys, if we're being honest with ourselves, by whose standard are we living? Do you know what we tend to do? We use words like good and bad. Well, I think that's good. Well, who determines good? Do you determine good? Do I determine good? You know, Adolf Hitler thought killing six million Jews was good for humanity. He thought it was social evolution. He thought he was doing humanity a favor. He thought he was good. He wasn't good, but it was his standard of good. Do you see what happens when we leave the standard of right and wrong in the hands of humanity? Did you hear what I just said? Do you see what happens when you leave the standard of right and wrong in humanity? We hurt people and we hurt ourselves. And here's the other thing. We cannot live self-righteously. You know, if I compare myself to some of you, I might look pretty good. A lot of you can compare yourself to me and you will look really good. But here's the thing. When we stand in front of Jesus Christ, I'm not gonna be able to be like, hey, well, I'm a lot better than Bob over here. Jesus is gonna go, we're not talking about Bob. We're talking about you. And we're not holding you up against Bob. I'm holding you up against this. And that leads to the second question. If I were to hold my thoughts, <laughs> if I were to hold my actions, my words, if I were to hold how I raise my children and treat my wife, how I treat my neighbor, how I act out in society, if I were to hold those things up to the standard of the word of God, how would it hold up? And here's the other thing, if it doesn't hold up well, we have to be willing to repent. And the Bible says, change the way we think and act. We have to be willing to do that. But if we're being honest in this room, not to the standard of your neighbor, not to the standard of someone else, right? If we were to hold our life up to the standard, because our standard, the Bible says, is like filthy rags. So are we holding our standard up to, are we holding our lives up to the standard of God's word? Something to think about, okay? Bow your heads with me this morning. Thank you guys again for being here. I appreciate your, your patience. And I don't know why I feel the need to tell you guys this, and, and maybe it's for me, maybe it's not for you. I, I pray that all of you fight the temptation and, and the allurement to, to gauge your value and your performance up against other people. Be what God wants you to be. Live up to the word of God. Now listen, we're gonna fail at times. We're not always gonna live up well to the word of God, but in those moments, just ask God to forgive you and he will forgive you. And listen, if, if, if we ask God to fill us with his Holy Spirit, he will give us the ability to live more and more like his word says. We just have to lean on him. Don't compare yourself to others. Try to hold yourself up to Jesus and live by that standard. If you're in this room and maybe you're not a believer and you have questions, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Emily is up here. If you have any questions for her, please feel free to come up and ask Emily any questions you might have. We also have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything in your life, please come get prayer. And then the last thing is there is communion all the way around this room. Wherever you see a lamp on a table, uh, in most of the posts in the middle, there is bread and wine that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ that Jesus loves you so much that he would die for you and he does not want to judge you. <laughs> he wants to save you. And all of us can take communion as long as we have asked Jesus to forgive us of our sin, okay? Let me pray for you. Father God, we love you.
Lord, I love the, the, the men and women in this room. God, I pray that you keep your hand on all of us, Lord. Protect us, protect our minds, protect our bodies. Father, let us live a life not trying to mimic anyone else in this world, not trying to gain the acceptance of this world, God, but Lord, empower us and encourage us to live a life that, that mimics yours, God, and your word. Father, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. Keep everyone safe until we meet again. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself.